John 17 this morning. John 17, we're going to read two verses, verse 11 and verse 12. John 17, verse 11 and 12. Jesus Christ is praying to His Father, and He says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to Thee. Holy Father, keep through Thine own name those whom Thou hast given Me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in Thy name. Those that Thou gavest Me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Leave off reading there in verse 12. As our Lord continues to pray, He begins to ask very specific things from His Father. He's praying specifically for the apostles, but then expands that prayer out to all of the saints of God. One of those requests is that His Father may keep those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep them in such a way that they might be in unity one with another. That's what he's praying for in verse 11. The focus of this message this morning is going to be verse 11. Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, holy, I come to thee, holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that, in order that they may be one as we are. One as we are. We've already seen that kind of terminology in previous verses uh, that you love as I have loved you, as the Father has loved you. We've seen that kind of terminology already. And now his focus in this prayer is on unity as we are one. The Son speaking to his Father. But let's break down this verse uh, statement by statement so we can understand what our Lord is praying. First, He says, I am no more in the world. I come to Thee. Again, the Lord speaks in terms of things having already been completed. While on the earth, while facing the Garden of Gethsemane, while facing the cross at Calvary, while facing the coming grave, and then three days and three nights later the resurrection, while facing another 40 days of ministry in His church on the earth before He would ascend to take His place in heaven upon His throne, while facing all of those things, He makes the statement, I am no more in the world. I am no more in the world. He is leaving this earth He is returning to His Father and for Him. In His mind and in His heart, it is already accomplished. Nothing is going to hinder that. No one is going to keep that from coming to pass. God can speak in terms of things having already been completed because God is God. And everything from this point to the completion of it is under His control. Nothing is going to stop God from accomplishing His purposes. So He can pray here, I am no more in the world, because He sees it already having been accomplished, everything accomplished, every purpose fulfilled. I am no more in the world. I am coming to you. These are in the world though. Speaking of the eleven and then broadening out from them to all Christians, Though he is no longer, will no longer be in the world, his followers will be. Being in the world, what does that mean? I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. The phrase in the world means the place where we live, the place where we labor, the place where we minister the Word of God. It's the world in which we live. It means that we live and labor in the realm of those, the world, 
who are quietly asleep in the lap of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. And we know, John says, 1 John 5, 19, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. The Greek construction behind the English is the whole world lies, as it were, like a little baby asleep in his mother's lap. He lies asleep in the la- the world lies asleep in the lap of Satan, comforted and sleeping quietly, undisturbed. The whole world is quietly resting under the watch care of Satan. But we are of God. What a contrast 1 John 5.19 sets out. We are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness, in the lap of wickedness. That's the place of our ministry. That's the place of our service for the living God. We are in the world. And that's how the world is defined in the Scriptures. It means that we live and labor in the midst of those who hate our God, as we have already seen, who hate His Word and the very message that has been entrusted to us. They hate His people and they are determined to persecute that which is of God. John chapter 15 and verse 19, our Lord Jesus Christ has already dealt with this. The Gospel of John chapter 15 verse 19, the Scripture says, if you were of the world, the world would love His own. But because you are not of the world, remember we are of God, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hateth you. There is a form of Christianity that gets along with the world, that is even appreciated by the world, where the world can say, God bless you, and, 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 and mean it under these broad terms. But there is another form of Christianity that is in direct opposition to the world, that calls men and women and children to leave the world and come and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that message is hated by the world. It means that we live in the midst of a place that is full of tribulation and trouble. If you are a Christian, you already know that. You know that life has been a, 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 a walk of trouble. And life has been a time of tribulation. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep... In the midst of wolves, Jesus Christ says. This is our lot. This is the world. This is the definition of the world in which we are sent into. We are sent as sheep into a pack of wolves. Trouble waits us. Tribulation waits us. It will come to pass. It will happen. But He warns them in advance. This is is what it is. And means also that we live in a place that will be constantly tempting us to turn from our God to embrace it. Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The world we live in seeks our friendship, wants our friendship, draws us into a friendship with itself. But as soon as we are drawn into a friendship of the world, we have left our God. And we cannot do that. And yet, there is this constant drawing, encouraging, constant message from the world. You don't need that kind of Christianity. Embrace the kind of Christianity that we embrace. I remember that there was a time in which um, Billy Graham went to Russia. And he said that Christianity is flourishing in Russia. And what he went to was the state organized churches. He didn't see the underground churches that were being persecuted. And he called that state organized church Christianity. It was acceptable to the communist government. And if you were going to be part of a Christian in the communist government, 
that was the place you had to go and had to attend. If you went to an underground church, if you sought to follow the Scriptures alone, they would hound you and persecute you and take your Bibles away from you and seek to kill you and destroy you. He saw that which was the facade. He called it Christianity, but it was not Christianity. It was not Christianity. Same thing happened today. We hear of reports written in all kinds of Christian publications how Christianity is flourishing under Putin, how churches are being built by the Roman, by the Russian government, and people are just thrilled. And I'm thinking to myself, what is the statement they make today? Communists building church buildings is not a testimony of Christianity flourishing. Any more than communist China building church buildings is a testimony of Christianity flourishing. We are called to be in a world that wants to draw us into itself, to become a friend so that we have this facade that we are friends with the world. Christianity is not an enemy of the world. Christianity is not an enemy of the governments of the world. Christianity is not, does not stand in opposition to the world's message. That's the kind of Christianity that we embrace and we are not a friend of God. The message that God has called us to says that our form of Christianity, that true Christianity stands in opposition to the messages of the world. In opposition to the religions of the world that are readily acceptable. You ever wondered how the Pope could sit down with Muslims and, and communists and Hindus and Buddhists and come away, everyone in agreement? You ever wondered about that? That's not true Christianity. At the same time that that's happening, Muslims are killing true Christians. Hindus are killing true Christians while they sit at a table and say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. These are in the world. We cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. Just like we cannot love God and love and, and serve uh, uh, God and at the same time love money and serve money. We can't. There are some lines drawn in the Scriptures for us. But it also means, brethren, being in the world, it also means that we live in a place that is already overcome and defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Our eyes don't see that. Our minds don't register that. The only way that we're going to know that fact to be true is to read on the pages of this book that that is true. The world seems to have overcome God and everything related to Him. It seems to have squashed Christianity down to a footnote in history. It seems that way. But Jesus Christ said in John 16 and verse 33, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The world is already overcome. It is already defeated enemy. It is still railing and, and trying to raise up its, its head against God. They are still trying to link hand in hand. Uh, nations gather together to try to defeat God. But we've already read the last chapter and the last book of the Scriptures and the nations are defeated. Every last one of them as the King of Kings stands with one foot on the ocean and one on the land, and heaven erupts with, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Amen. These are in the world though. That's a reality. That's where we are. It will do us no good to pretend like we're not here. We are in the world. We don't have to be of it, but we are definitely in it. And so He prays, I'm coming to you. I'm no more in the world. I'm coming to you. But these are in the world. And so I'm asking you, keep 
those Thou hast given Me. Keep them. Because we remain in the world, our Lord asked His Father to be actively involved in keeping the children of God generation after generation after generation. Keep. This word keep means that our Lord is asking His Father to guard those that have been given to Him. To protect them. To preserve them. Those are words that help define the Greek behind the word keep. But it has the idea of keeping an eye upon. It's different than building a wall about and putting a fortress around. That's a different word. That's used in the Scriptures also about the people of God. But that's not the word used here. This word is, you keep an eye on them for me. Keep an eye on them. He's asking His Father, wherever we might be in this world, keep an eye on them. And I was thinking about that uh, as I went to bed one night this past week and, and woke up in the early morning hours thinking about uh, this verse and I didn't know the address. So I had to quick get up after I got up this morning and, and not that morning and go to my and search it out. Go to my computer. Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, wherever we are. Throughout the whole earth. Even Santa Ana, Texas. <laughs> even Santa Ana, Texas. I never even knew this place existed. I didn't even know it was a place. Till what? What year was that? Nineteen ninety something? No, eighty something. I met Brother Charles Sheffield. The eyes of the Lord throughout the whole world, throughout the whole earth, to show Himself strong in behalf of those whose heart are perfect toward Him. Show Himself strong on behalf of those who are His children. He is asking His Father to carefully watch over us, not only everywhere we might be, but in every situation we might find ourselves. As it says in Psalm 34, in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. The two are connected. Not just now in where they are, but they are crying to me in a particular situation. They may be asking me something regarding their finances or their health, or they may be asking me something about a lost person in the family. They may be asking about a job or something. They may be asking for an open door. Wherever, whatever the burden, whatever the circumstance that they are facing, their mouth is crying, their tongue is being used, their lips are being used, and my eye is upon them as I'm listening and I see the situation in which they find themselves as I listen to what they're asking me. I see the situation. I know the need. They're asking for this much. They need that much. I'm going to provide what they need because I can see the situation as it is. That's what He's asking. Thirdly, He's asking His Father to carefully protect and provide for each of His children. Deuteronomy 32 verse 10 is a reference to physical nation of Israel, but spiritually it may be applied to the children of God. The seed of Abraham that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That seed. Deuteronomy 32.10 He found Him in a desert land and in a waste and howling wilderness. That's where God found us. He didn't find us in the palaces of glory. He found us in the wasted land. We had wasted our life in sin. And He led Him and instructed Him and He kept Him as the apple of His eye. The phrase apple of His eye is that tenderest part of the eye. You stick your finger in your eye and it hurts, doesn't it? We protect that. It is that most tender part that is protected 
And uh, the children of God are like the apple of His eye. Well protected and preserved and taken care of. He's also asking His Father to keep His followers, and this is another aspect of the Word, to keep His followers in the same state in which He finds them. That is, He is asking His Father to preserve us as true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was one that was lost, that the Judas was lost, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, but these are not in that state. They are not lost. They are saved. They are true followers. They are weak and they don't understand things. But they are mine. And I'm asking you to keep them in the same state in which they are today. That is, as true followers. I'm asking you to preserve their Christianity in them. Part of what he's asking for is this. They cannot save themselves and they cannot keep themselves saved. Father, keep them. Preserve them. Watch over them. Maintain them in the place where they are today. And the place where they are today is not in their ignorance, not in their present sin that we'll see in a few minutes, not in their uh, struggle to understand three and a half years of teaching. Don't maintain that. Don't keep them there. They will grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But keep them as they are in reality. Christians. True followers of Christ. Despite the weakness of where they are at at this very moment. What a prayer. What a prayer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, the Apostle Paul prays the same prayer, expresses the same truths. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, set you apart for Himself, wholly and completely. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. His prayer is exactly the same as the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, preserve them, body and soul and spirit, blameless before you. Not because they're perfect people. Not because they don't make mistakes. Not because they don't sin. Preserve them blameless because they are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Preserve them before you. Peter prays the same way and expresses the same truth. 1 Peter 1.4 That we are to an inheritance incorruptible and undefined and it fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. We are kept by the power of God unto salvation to an inheritance. It's reserved for us. The English word reserved in 1 Peter 1.4 and the English word preserved in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 are the exact same word as the translated kept in John 17.11. Keep them. Preserve them. Reserve a place for them. That's what He's asking. So our Lord's request to keep His followers is imperative. It's not a suggestion. <laughs> Nor is it a simple request where the hearer is at liberty to do or not to do. But it is imperative. Our Lord is pressing upon His Father the absolute need that this be done on behalf of the children the, of God, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, brethren, is a very important request from the Son of God to His Father. It is why we are maintained as Christians day by day until we get to glory. But, John 17 verse 11 now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I am come to Thee. Holy Father, keep through Thine own naming those whom Thou hast given Me, that they may be one. That they may be one as we are. As we are. That they may be one. The... I keep going back to Greek because that's the 
we get our translate our English version from a Greek New Testament, the received text. The language here is present tense and active. What does that mean? That means that they may be one now and continue to be one until they get to glory. It is present tense. They are. There is a need for them right now to be made one. But that it needs to be continued. In English, we don't have a word like that. We have to put string together a whole bunch of words. But in Greek, it, it, it's just the, the way the word is. It's, it's called the it's active, present tense active. Now you know a little bit about it. You probably won't remember hardly any of that. But what that means is, right now, they need it. And I want you to continue it. That they may continue to remain one and keep on being one as we are. One. As we are. I want to deal with this because it's very critical to understand the request here. He is not asking that His true followers live as though they are one person as the Godhead lives. Remember, there's one God Three distinct persons. As we are does not refer to the fact that there is only one God. Okay? One God. Three distinct persons, but one God. He's not requesting that. Otherwise, the request would be that every one of His followers be like one man. One person. He's not asking that. Okay? He repeats this again. John seventeen twenty two. In the text, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. So the exact same phrase comes up again in verse 22. We know and understand, and you've heard me preach, that there is one God, and at the same time, the Godhead is three distinct and different persons, each easily distinguished from the other. The Father, is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Father. Each distinct person, each one, carrying out his own distinct responsibilities. Each with their own purpose. Each working together for the same purpose and the same end. All three persons of the Godhead accomplishing the task of whatever it is. Creation or salvation all three are involved to accomplish the same purpose, the same end. This is important because he's not talking about the Godhead as one person, but the Godhead as three distinct persons laboring together for one great purpose. Our Lord is praying that His true followers might live in unity with one another, even though each of them is different. Each has different abilities. Each has different levels of understanding of Christianity at different times in their life. There is a tremendous diversity among the people of God. And yet he is praying for unity. The same kind of unity that the Godhead has. He is praying that they might be one in will and spirit. Not one person, like the Godhead, but one in will and spirit. This is what he's requesting. His disciples were already one in union with one another. They were already members of the local church which our Lord established on the earth in the early part of His ministry. By the time we come to Acts chapter 1, if you want to turn over there with me, I'm going to read verses 13 through 15. We see that they are one in union together. Acts chapter 1 verse 13, And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, and there abode 
both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus, and Judas, Judas the brother of James. There they were. There the disciples are. There the apostles are gathered together. Verse 14, these, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, parentheses, the number of the names together were about 120, close parentheses. I want to focus on two words. They have a list of names, introduces the women, and then the brothers, and they're all together, and we're told there's 120 of them. The word names at the end of verse 15, and the word together. The word names refers to the membership of the local church at Jerusalem, and the word together refers to the unity among the membership. John Gill, commenting in verse 15 about the word together, writes, quote, agreeing in the same faith and judgment, and there was there a company whose names and wills agreed in this same opinion. They were all in one place and of the same, of one mind. Close quotes from John Gill. Their wills were bound together one with another. Okay? I'll explain this a little bit more later. So stay with me on this. What about the word names? How, Brother Pat, do you get from that word the membership of the church? Well, it's only used one other time in connection to a church, and that's in the book of the Revelation. In the book of the Revelation, chapter 3. In the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words. And unto the angel, or the pastor of the church at Sardis, write. And this is one of the seven churches of Asia. Sardis is one of them. And the phrase angel means messenger or the, referring to the pastor of the church. You can look all that up later, but that's what I've taught over the course of these years. So we're dealing with a local church. A local church in a city called Sardis. Now drop down to verse 4. Thou hast, thou Sardis, thou church in Sardis, hast what? A few names. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and shall walk, and, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You have a few names. That is an interesting way of expressing what's going on in that church. He could have just as easily said, You have a few members. In fact, had he said you have a few members, it would solve for us <laughs> a little bit easier understanding. But he says, among all the names that are associated with the local church of Sardis, there's only a few that still walk with me. And by the way, if you want to remember the word Sardis and the condition of it, think of the word sardines, stinking fish stuck together in a can. They had a name, they were alive, but they were dead. They were stinking, but in that church where the candlestick of our Lord still remained. There were a few names. A few saints that still walk with God. So it's used twice in relation to a local church and it refers to the membership of the church. The membership of the local church was in union. They were together. They were in union. But Lord is not praying for union. He is praying for unity. The early disciples were in union in one church. But they were in danger of not being in unity in that union of the membership of that church. They were part of the membership of the church, but they were in danger of not being in unity, even though they were part of the union of the church. They were in danger of not being one in purpose. 
one in spirit. They were in danger of having their own mind about things. Listen to what's going on. At the very time our Lord is praying in John chapter 17, just prior to this perhaps, we read in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, that during the Passover, Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, and there was also a strife among them. Why? Which of them should be accounted the greatest? They are in union in the membership of a church and there is strife as to who's going to be the greatest. And now he's praying. He's not praying about the union. He's praying about the unity. Already developing among the eleven, spreading into the church, is this disunity over who's going to be the greatest. Our Lord prays that His followers might have unity in their union one with another. This is addressed throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul addresses the same issue on a number, in a number of epistles. Go with me now to Romans chapter 15, verse 5 and 6. Romans chapter 15 and verse 5 and 6. Where the Apostle Paul says, and now, he says, now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus according to Christ Jesus like-minded in accordance with the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ he prays for them this is the churches in the region of Rome The God of patience needs to do something for you. The God of consolation, the God of comfort and instruction, that God who comes, who comforts you with His Word, that God needs to do something for you. He needs to make you like-minded, one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, in relation to His Son. Not like-minded one toward another in relation to your pastor or to brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, but in relation to Christ. In the same way Jesus Christ is like-minded with His Father in the Godhead. Paul is praying for God to work within the local church and that that working will produce a unity through patience and a conciliatory entreaty. The word consolation. Entreating one another in a conciliatory way. Not demanding. Not requiring. But entreating one another. Consolation here. Produce unity in the way you talk to each other. How you address each other when there are differences between you. That God will produce an atmosphere of harmony among all the church members so they may be like-minded regarding the ministry. Even though there is no full agreement on doctrinal understanding or Christian practice at this time. Do you realize in the New Testament church, in the first church at Jerusalem, How many people did not understand what you understand this morning? Doctrinally understand what you understand this morning. They were saved, baptized, added. Boom. The next week, 5,000 more. Saved, baptized, added. Boom. New Christians. Mostly Jews. Coming out of Judaism. With 11 men there to teach them what they didn't fully understand themselves. And yet God called it a church. And that particular church was the beginning of the gospel going into the world. This atmosphere of harmony 
even though someone doesn't understand or agree with you on a doctrinal issue. That you don't just throw them out the window with a baby bat with a bathwater. But you maintain a unity in the union. That God's example of patience and God's example of comforting you who have been weak and now are stronger, but who are still weak in some areas, that God's example toward you become your example to the other members. That the way God has treated you is the way you treat that brother or that sister. That you didn't always understand, that you didn't always grasp, but you now see some things. And yet, don't be... Don't get the idea that now you've got a handle on it. And there's still some things you don't see, like there's some things I don't. How has God treated you since you've become a Christian? He slapped you around, booted you out because you didn't understand? No, you know He didn't. And this is what He's praying for. He's praying that those who serve God within their, learn, within their local church learn to do so by receiving other members as Christ received them. As He continues to receive them and as He works with them throughout their Christian life. Receive other members the same way God is receiving you with regard to Christ Jesus. How has He received you? How is He this moment receiving you? John Gill writes, this request regards a likeness of affection, the sameness of mutual love, that they be one heart and one soul, that notwithstanding their different sentiments about things, they should love one another and cease either to despise or judge each other, but think as well and as highly of them that differ from them as of themselves. Esteeming others, not only equal, but better. And of those of their own sentiments, without preferring in affection one to another, but studying and devising to promote and maintain an equality among them. Showing the same equal affection and respect to one as to the other and to one another. An equality. Not setting ourselves apart from the weakest and just nurturing ourselves with the strongest but nurturing all equally. That's what He's praying for. That's what He's asking His Father for. That they might be one as we are. The same thing shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all, that you all speak the same thing. And this has been misconstrued and I want to get to it and get to dealing with this but we're dealing with exactly the same issue here that you all speak the same thing that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together of the same mind and in the same judgment here Paul is instructing the local church at Corinth to labor by the way let me just insert here do you know what follows after verse 10 shortly a couple of verses I hear among you that you say I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. I hear you speaking different things. Instead, you should be speaking the same thing. Look at it in its context and it explains to you what it is. He's instructing the local church at Corinth to labor, to be to be engaged and to labor to secure 
and unbroken harmony among themselves. There is division in that church. They are united in one membership. Corinth. They have come behind in no gift. And yet there is division. And so what is he saying? Labor among yourselves in the midst of all the diversity of thought and and feeling which different backgrounds and different training and different stages of Christianity have brought you to. Labor for a harmonious unity in that atmosphere. You got someone old in the Lord. Peter, been walking with God for three and a half years. God on the earth. And he shows up in Jerusalem and 3,000 on the day of Pentecost are brought in. The mature one is only three years old in the Lord. 5,000 more the next week. The mature one is three years old in the Lord and now there's some that are a week old in the Lord. I showed up in a church that I will not recommend, but I showed up after God saved me in a church and a man that was six weeks old in the Lord took me under his wings, (laughs) under his care. Six weeks old in the Lord. What did I know about Christianity? With my long hair and bell-bottom pants. What do we know? My wife and I did not dress appropriately when we first became Christians. What do we know about Christianity? It took us a while to figure out things about music and stuff like that. Idolatry. It took us a while. In the meantime, we labored in a church and sought to be harmonious. Received us as we were. We walked through that door received us as we were. Thank God for it. They laid, they didn't teach me much, but they laid one foundation in my heart. The Word of God is the final authority on all things. They didn't teach me much more than that. They didn't understand the Gospel, but that much I got. And as I left there to start my own church, God continued to teach me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.25 that these should that there should be no schism in the body. He's talking about the local church at Corinth. But that the members should have the same care one for another. That's what he's talking about. The same care. The same love and appreciation. That's what he's talking about when he says same mind, same voice. That's what he's talking about. You know, somebody said to me, Brother Pat, I'm listening to so-and-so. I, you know, i got a, spe- a specific person in mind and i got a specific opinion about that person. And it is not good. And you know what I said to that person? I said, I'm listening to so-and-so. I said, well, he's a good preacher. He has something good to say. You don't have to swallow everything that comes down the pike, but there's some things that man can help you with. And I shut my mouth on the rest of it. Why, Brother Pat? In due season. I don't have to hit you over the head with a baseball bat every time you open your mouth and I don't agree with you. I'm not going to do that to you or anybody else. Paul writes to the Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and 3, and then 13. I want you to see this So turn over there. And I want you to see specifically the wording of chapter 4, verse 3 and the wording of chapter 4, verse 13. But let's begin in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beg you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness and with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, forbearing one another in love, And then the next words are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 13. Till we come 
No. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit until we all come into the unity of the faith. Wow. You're not going to come to a unified doctrinal position without a endeavoring to maintain a, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the first thing that has to happen in a local church. The connection between verse 3 and 13 should not be overlooked and should not be ignored as though you can have one without the other. You cannot have a unity of doctrinal foundation without first having maintained the unity of the Holy Spirit. The members of a local church are to be actively engaged. The word endeavoring. Actively engaged. To actively engage themselves in a concerted effort to keep the unity in the local church. That's what endeavoring, endeavoring means. To keep the unity in a local church and they are to do so until each and every member of the church comes to a unity of faith. The word faith here is used in a, as a noun and it is a reference to a, the body of biblical truth established in the Word of God. The faith. It's a noun, not a verb. Until we come to a unified doctrinal position. Now when is that going to be? When are we going to come as a church to a unified doctrinal position? And we labor and labor in three months. We get some people come along and six months later a whole new crowd comes in. When are we going to come to a unified doctrinal position? Well, we labor some more and a year later a whole other crowd comes in. And when are we going to come to a unified doctrinal position? When we get to heaven. time on earth, we're laboring, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit till we all come to the unity of the faith. Endeavor. The Greek word actually means to use speed. Speed as in being quick and fast. To use speed, to be prompt, to be earnest in your efforts to labor at or towards keeping unity. To exert yourself to the task of keeping unity, the unity of the Spirit in the church. It means that it's going to take effort on our part to do it. It doesn't happen by accident. God the Spirit is hovering over His church, ministering over His church, working in His church a unity. That's the sovereign aspect of God. We are personally responsible to endeavor to maintain that. We don't have to worry about God doing His part. Unity will be here. If this church belongs to God, unity will be here. If it doesn't, we need to get out of it now. But if it belongs to God, unity will be here. My responsibility as pastor and your responsibility as a church member is to endeavor to maintain it. To maintain what God is doing. Unity. The word unity is that which produce, is produced by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Lord's church. It is not produced by the pastor. It is not even produced by the members. It is produced by the presence of God. It is the unity of the Spirit. The unity that flows out of the Spirit of God. does not refer to unity among the elect in the universal family of God. It does not refer to unity to outward conformity or to uniformity. Uniformity, children, that's a big word. It means everybody is the same. Everybody wears the same clothes. Everybody opens their mouth and say the same words. Everybody has the same haircut. Everybody's the same. Uniformity. It's not talking about that. It's talking about unity. It's talking about unity. Unity of thought and feeling, of mind and heart. When I look at a brother, when I look at a sister, I'm not only in union with him as a member of the church, but I want to be 
united. I want to maintain a unity between us. Unity of thought and feeling among individual members of the local church to maintain that which is produced by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you if you're a believer and the Holy Spirit dwelling within His church if His church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. The testimony that a church belongs to God is the presence of the Holy Spirit in unity and truth. In unity and truth. Those two things maintained by the Spirit of God. In John 17, verse 11, our Lord is praying that His Father might keep His followers so they might maintain a biblical unity in their efforts to carry on the ministry bestowed upon them by the Lord Jesus Christ and in their efforts to spread the gospel entrusted to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. I have given them your word, he says. I have given them the message. I have taught them the gospel. I have said to them, I will say to them before I ascend in glory to go into the whole world to take that message that I have given you to the whole world. I am praying that you keep them unified, focused together as a people to that end. To that end. Let me say this to you this morning. If this church remains focused on the spread of the gospel into the world, Satan has to do something to destroy it. The rest of the churches in this community can be caught up in all kinds of different things. They can get political. They can, do, they can preach on abortion. They can talk about this or that or the other. They can, uh, they, they can focus on a thousand different things. It makes no difference. As long as they're distracted from the gospel message going into the world. But if they ever get focused on that one thing, that God will take His church and use them to reach the world with a gospel message, then this becomes critical. This becomes critical. Our Lord prays that His Father would keep, might preserve all those that are His true followers. But not by force. Not by compulsion. Not by making them slaves and robots. Not that way. Our Lord prays that His Father might keep us one by spiritual persuasion. By working His love and His patience and His kindness and His long-suffering in our hearts. And that flows out to others. What God does in us comes out toward others. He prays that His Father might help the members of each local church to understand the oneness of the Godhead, the oneness of their love and life and spiritual power and how that functions. Not as one person, not as God, but as individuals distinct, carrying out each one his own purpose Together, in love, in power, in life. As you study the Scriptures, you see the Father involved in some things, the Son of God involved in some things, the Holy Spirit involved in other things. And you see this unity of three distinct persons. And so, Father, I am praying that You keep them that they may be one as we are. That we might see in the Godhead the holy desire and the holy commitment of their oneness to accomplish their purpose. That we might see the Godhead laboring to accomplish the salvation of the elect. That we might see how God functions and then emulate that in our church. He prays that we might look at how Christ functioned on the earth, that we might look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit and grasp how three persons have one purpose. One purpose. And if a church ever gets focused like that, if we ever come to that place where we can attain to that, 
under God. It will be glorious. I've seen it. I've seen it. We need it. The one true and living God is bound together in divine unity of purpose to accomplish the salvation of sinners. May our church be bound to our God and to one another for the same purpose. May we be bound together in our efforts to see sinners saved and the kingdom of God expanded. May that bind us. Not simply in union one with another, but in unity of purpose and cause. Let's pray together.